2: Welcome to The Word, The Stand On For Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and I am filling in for Pastor Ron today and tomorrow uh, while he is away at the CCA International Pastors Conference in California. So both he and Paula are doing well. They send their love. They will be back on the air here for the Day Day edition on Thursday in the meantime, uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, it's my turn to fill in, but the show continues the same way it always does, and we're here to take your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about doctrine, questions about Jesus, and specifically how to put the Word of God into practice in your life, questions about church life, and, and these are, are, are things that we want to help with so that you can fall even deeper in love with Jesus. That's the reason why this program exists. So with that, let me give you the phone number so you can call in. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. That's the local number. There's also a toll-free number. If you're outside of the area, 877 630-5757, 877-630-5757. six three zero five seven five seven eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. The email address is questions at calvarysa dot com. Questions at calvarysa dot com. You can use our church app, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, to submit questions. There's a page there that'll take you to the site where you can type your question in and hit submit. It'll go right into our inbox. You can also call in much better and you can call in using the KSLR mobile app. There is a dial now button at the top and you will be connected to the radio station. You can ask your question on the air. All right. It's the Tuesday edition. There really isn't anything going on here at Calvary Chapel. So we can go right into the questions that have been submitted. We do have a bunch And so while we're waiting for your calls, I'll take them. The first one, and quite a few of these I notice are from Anonymous. Uh, The first one is Anonymous. Hi, Pastor Ken, I have a question about when we get our new bodies. When the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first, why aren't they already with Christ? I thought our last breath here on earth here on earth and our next breath is in heaven. And when we, and when do they get their new bodies? I thought it was right away. Anonymous, you're correct. Uh, And so let me first say this from the beginning. Uh, There are slightly differing views on this. Uh, We believe the Bible says very clearly when Paul writes to the Corinthians in his second letter, that in chapter five, that, that to be absent from our bodies is to be immediately present with the Lord. And so we don't believe in what some people call an intermediate state. We believe we get our glorified bodies right away. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, and I, I, re- I believe that Paul had the same perspective. You remember Paul's attitude when Paul the apostle would write to the Philippians and He was torn in his letter, torn because he wanted to be there with them to minister to them. He said to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And specifically by that gain, he meant, I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with him. He would say, I desire to depart, meaning to die from this earth, to depart and to be with Christ He wasn't saying that he wanted to die and then go into some state where he would wait. Because outside of earth, in the presence of God, remember, we're outside of time and space. And I understand that there are other different eschatological views on this, but we believe that the Bible is very clear. Uh, Now, specific to your question about the new bodies here, uh, I think you're referencing when you use the phrase here, the dead in Christ will rise first. This is in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And in chapter 4, starting at around verse 13, he starts to talk about the rapture and specifically how our bodies, these bodies, will, will give way. He writes about the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. And these bodies that we have are, are temporary; they're tabernacles, they're tents. And he uses the the image of a tent, sort of as a euphemism and as an analogy, to say that these bodies that we're living in were not meant to last forever. So we will receive our glorified bodies. Now, in First Thessalonians chapter four, uh, what 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 you're quoting here is when uh, it says that the, Paul's writing that the dead in Christ will rise first. You see, this does not describe a chronology of events. And that's how some people might misunderstand this, that when the call and the trumpet call takes place, then the tombs open up and then bodies will rise. Well, that's not what this says. This says that the dead in Christ will have already risen. They will be first. So they're not going to go, and the point is, they're not going to go ahead of those who are still alive. I mean, they will go, I'm sorry, they will go ahead of those. So those who are already dead in Christ will already be there with him. That's why if you look back at verse 14, I believe, verse 14 says, when Jesus comes, he will bring with him those who are his. So those people who have already passed away in Christ, will be with him. Those of us who are still alive here on earth will be caught up with him in the air. This is what's called the rapture. And, and Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. Remember, the, the, the occasion of his letter was to give them comfort. It was to assure them that those who had died previously did not miss out because they will be coming with him. They will already have their new bodies. And so you're right, Anonymous. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this is something that Paul here says in, in his letter to the Thessalonians is something that we ought to comfort one another with. This is, again, the reason why he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians was because they were confused, there was concern. And so he wanted to give them comfort, and, and that's why today, the answer to your question here is, yes, we will have our new bodies immediately, and we are to find comfort in that, that the dead in Christ will not have missed out. They will be there already with him, and we will go. Those of us who are still alive, verse 16, will go to be with him. And so, uh, Anonymous, thank you for your question. Yes, The short answer is yes, you're correct. Uh, Second question, uh, also anonymous. This one is, uh, I'll spend a little bit on this. Um, Pastor Ken, my 12-year-old son just told me he thinks he is a girl. I am so broken, uh, so heartbroken. Uh, How do I handle this? I raised him to know Jesus. And now I know that... uh, and now I know. Don't now I don't know what to do. I know it's wrong, and I don't support it. Uh, anonymous, uh, this is very important. You know, in the society that we live in today, you know, kids who are twelve years old or even younger are bombarded with things that are not only lies. Uh, not only demonic, but there are things that are antithetical to what the Word of God says and you know whether it 's public school or just among their friend group or, or 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 going online on social media, there is a constant barrage of brainwashing material that tries to convince people, especially kids that the body that they were born in is not the right body. That if they feel a certain way, people will be there to to, to, to to be used by the enemy, to convince them that they need to make changes. And so my heart goes out to you, Anonymous. So specific to your question, how do I handle this? Two things. Number one, your son... Your 12 year old son lives in your home. You are the parent, and your son is the child. And so, what you need to do is make it absolutely clear that this is Jesus' home with Jesus' rules. This isn't your house and you make up rules. This is Jesus' home, and these are Jesus' rules and and even if you can't force someone to be a christian even at 12 years old what you can do is you you give them the rules and you say look these are the rules and you you are the parent responsible even to enforce them you 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 make them come to church you make them participate in family discussions family bible studies or or devotions you 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 you're the parent that says, these are the rules, and we're going to abide by these rules. So that when questions like this come up, or when situations come up like this come up about your son saying he feels like he's a girl, or he thinks he's a girl, well, you can reference God's Word, and you can say, since this is Jesus's house, let's look to God's Word and find out what he says. This is not mommy's opinion. This is not daddy's opinion. This is the Word of God. You see, that's really hard to do when you are in a home where Jesus is not the center. You're in a home where the Word is not taught. Not because all of a sudden, uh, we're going to use uh, the Bible to enforce rules at home when we have never done that before. Well, that's on the parents. And so you say, though, that you raised him to know Jesus. So I'm not talking about you, just in general. But let me get specific to your your question. I said I had two things. The second thing is this. Uh, When it comes to your child saying that he thinks, he, your son saying he thinks he's a girl, what you need to do as a parent is is sit down and, and talk very clearly and directly about these things. You are not a girl. You are a boy. This is how God made you. Now, I understand there may be some feelings, but because this is a house that is centered on God's Word, we go to God's Word and find out how we deal with these feelings. You know, if your 12-year-old son felt like he was a bird and 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 he wanted to jump off the top of a building so he can fly. Obviously, we're not going to let that happen. There's something wrong. Well, in the same way, when when parents, uh, Christian parents, when we when we allow our kids to, again anonymous, I'm, I'm not talking about you because, you say you you raise your child to know Jesus, but when Christian parents, parents who call themselves Christians, allow the world to dictate the rules and what goes on at home. These are the kinds of things that we're going to deal with. And when you deal face to face with them, we don't have answers. Anonymous, be very clear with your son. In love, but very directly, you tell him is not a girl. And the fact that he has these feelings, well, we can talk about them. But just because we have feelings about something doesn't mean we act on them. This is when we have to teach our kids and teach uh, ourselves what God's Word says. We are to be governed by the Holy Spirit, not by our feelings, not by our thoughts. And if you are a 12-year-old child or a young child and you are, are allowed to let social media control your thoughts and shape you into who you are. I promise you it will be spiritual attack after spiritual attack because of that nonstop barrage. Now you go on to say this, I raised him to know Jesus and I know it's, and I know it's, and I don't know what to do. I know it's wrong and I won't support it. Well, here's what you do. In addition to the two things that I've already said, um, you don't overreact don't get angry and you certainly don't fight about it but you recognize it for what it is this is an attack from the enemy on your family and we we don't we don't battle with the devil what we do is go to God's Word we open up the Bible and we read to our family exactly what God's Word says again once that authority is established in the home then we can understand what's right and what's wrong. Now you say you know that it's wrong, and that's a good thing, but you need to be able to explain to your son why it is wrong, because this is what God's Word says. And now more than ever, where homes that have parents that, that go to church, but have a a lukewarm relationship with the Word of God, they're in danger. They're in danger. And so we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Anonymous, I hope that helps. Please be very direct with your son. He is not a girl. And go to God's Word and make this a regular habit in your home. Let's go to the phone lines. Line 1, Ruben, you're on the air. God bless Pastor How are you doing, sir? Hi, Ruben, my friend. It's good to hear from you. It's good to hear your voice again. I was just wondering, sir,
0: if you could clarify um, right now what's going on with Israel. Um, what countries are they fighting? And why does it seem that the media is is uh, just showing negative things that Israel Mm. is doing Mm. to defend themselves, but they're not showing what these other countries are doing. Right. And is this scriptural? Is this prophetic? Uh, Is this the book of Revelation uh, about to begin, or are we in it already?
2: Right, right. Good questions, Reuben. I can, I can address them. Uh, let, me ask, let me answer that last one first, just for our radio audience to be very clear. No, we are not in the book of Revelation, at least not in the tribulation. Yet yeah, these are all things, though—Reuben, you're correct—that the Bible describes what lead to a time where Jesus is returning— and so with that, we understand, looking at the world around us, and I'll get to the specific points about the countries here in a second, but looking at the world around us, the Christian's response to this should be, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is absolutely coming soon. In our lives, like Peter would write, what, what kind of people ought we to be, understanding the truth, the, the reality of Jesus returning. The way we live our lives today shouldn't be in fear. and We don't live by uh, reacting from emotion. We definitely don't live uh, by reacting I- I- in politics. What we do is now more than ever, this should generate in us a sense of urgency in sharing God's Word, sharing the hope of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world all around us and there are more and more people asking these very questions who are not saved reuben and these are opportunities for us to lead them to Christ to show them this is exactly what the bible said was going to happen now now before we get into into those discussions with nonbelievers before you get into the specifics you want to make sure that your focus is on pointing them to Jesus that's how we respond now, particular to the questions you asked at the beginning, uh, in Israel or in the in the area there, there are no allies of Israel. every single country in in some form or fashion uh, wants Israel destroyed, some more than others. obviously uh, there are rogue terror groups like Hamas and and Hezbollah that are that uh, want to eradicate the Jews, but they are all, there are also other countries that are supporting them. Uh, Iran and Lebanon, Jordan, Jordan. And these are all countries that want Israel out of the way. And so the, the hate they have towards Israel is demonic. And, you know, and you bring it up too, Ruben and, we we watch the news, and and we see countries uh, that are all showing new, uh, showing protests or showing uh, a pro Palestinian support to eradicate Jews. All of this is demonic, and instead of reacting emotionally or even politically, our response to it is, like Psalm 122 says, obviously we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we take the word of God out into the streets, into our conversations with people. I mean, now this is one of the most talked about things. It's one of the most uh, divisive things in conversation, It's polarizing for sure, But instead of getting involved in conversations that are politically charged or emotionally charged, what we do as Christians is we take this as an opportunity to lead them to Jesus Christ and say, look, this is the answer to all these things that are going on. Uh, Whenever we see the media or the news or just people in general, like, Uh, college campuses and and, and streets being filled with people marching for the eradication of Israel. All of this we know is demonic. And there are people who have, in our country, this is mind-blowing to me, in our country we have people who have no ties to the area but are in full support against Israel for whatever reason. And I believe at the very root of it is a a hatred for God. People who have hardened their heart towards God are not interested in hearing about repentance for their sin. They're not interested in hearing about forgiveness being available to them. Now, that is the message for everyone, no matter what ethnicity you come from. When we look at the news and we look at the people around us and we look how charged these things are, these conversations are, Ruben, uh, we don't get involved in those kinds of conversations. What we do is we use the time we have with the people around us that we have, whose ears we have, and we tell them, look, now more than ever is the time to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He offers forgiveness for your sin. doesn't matter what background you come from. And he's the answer to the hopelessness that we see in this world. So Reuben, I, I hope that answers your question. I hope that helps. Thank you for your call. We are inside two minutes here, and so I don't have time to take uh, any more questions or calls in the first half of the show. But I will uh, sort of elaborate on this from a practical perspective. Uh, even in church, You know, in in church, uh, when it comes to election time and politics, world news, and world affairs, uh, conversations come up, can easily come up, that are emotionally charged. And we have to temper our emotions and subject our feelings and thoughts to the authority, under the authority of God's Word. What I think is irrelevant— doesn't matter how passionate I am about something. It is God's Word and God's Word alone that tells me what should be important to me. That's the heart of God. You can hear the music. That means we are wrapping up the first half of the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand Out For Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and I'll be back in two minutes.
1: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. This is the second half of the Tuesday edition. My name is Pastor Ken. I am filling in today and tomorrow for Pastor Ron. Both he and Paula are in California He is there attending the CCA International Pastors Conference. So this is where all of the the CCA senior pastors get together. And uh, Pastor Ron gets to see guys and friends that he hasn't seen in quite a while. So it's a good thing. There's so much going on here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. It's a great time for him to catch up. So keep him in prayer. Keep him in prayer that the Lord would speak to his heart, that he would be encouraged And he will be back here on the air, both he and Paula, for the Date Day edition on Thursday. On Thursday. Let's go right to our phone lines. John from Universal City. You're on the air.
1: Hello, Pastor Ken. I have a question for you from Genesis. I don't know how I never noticed this before, but in chapter 39, Pharaoh is identified as the captain of the guard. And then in chapter 40 it says that the baker and the cupbearer were put in the same prison as Joseph and it says that um it is the prison was in the house of the captain of the guard. So does that mean that that the prison that Joseph was in was actually on
2: Potiphar's property? That's correct. That's that's how I read it too. Absolutely. And this this makes it even more personal because Joseph was so close, but yet so far away. So close. So he was on the property, or, or, or I don't know if I would say exactly on the property, but within the vicinity for sure. Within the vicinity for sure. So that's where the prison was. He wasn't far off. He was close by. Okay.
1: All right. And I don't know why I never noticed that before but um thank you I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> thank you for your call John. I'll, I'll elaborate on this because there's a practical application um that that I, I think about how close Joseph was when the cupbearer uh you know when when the baker was there and 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 made promises that he would talk about him when he gets out never did. He was so close. And it must have been discouraging that he could get out, but he couldn't. But this just goes to show the kind of heart that Joseph had. He trusted God even when it was really difficult. And when it seemed so close, he didn't lose faith in God. He kept trusting God. And so I love that. John, thank you for your call. Things like that really amaze me about God's Word. So practical, so practical. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. That's the local number if you want to call in. The toll-free number is 877-630-5757, 877-630-5757. There's an email address, questions at calvarysa.com questions at calvarysa.com. Submit them there. They'll go right into our email inbox. Both of those questions emailed and the questions submitted through the app or the website, they all go to the same place. We'll ask them on the air here during the show. You can listen and call in using the KSLR app. Super easy, especially if you're driving. There's a button at the top, and you'll be connected right to the radio studio, you can ask your question on the air. Okay, next question is from Anonymous. If Jesus knows we're not perfect, uh, why did he say we must be perfect in Matthew 5.48? Uh, you know, what? I think I got a question like this similarly or recently, but uh, this is important, Anonymous. Matthew 5.48 is in what we call the Sermon of the mount and and in the Sermon of the Mount, at the very beginning there, in chapter five, the Sermon of the Mount is three chapters, chapters five, six, and seven, but at the very beginning, in chapter five, we have this section called the Beatitudes, and towards the end of those Beatitudes, this is where we find this statement, and the whole point of Jesus saying that we must be perfect, is he is establishing the righteousness that is required for entrance into heaven. Now, the context is important because the people that were listening would have in sort of their periphery the, the religious leaders who were supposed to lead the Jewish people into the presence of God, but instead what they did was they lorded over the people legalistically and separated themselves from from the Jews from regular people as people who were uh, more holier better off than everybody else and 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 they would would speak publicly and pray long prayers they would uh, use their phylacteries to show that they carry the scriptures with them But all this was a show because there was no righteousness there. There was self-righteousness. And so Jesus is using this uh, illustration at the end of the Beatitudes to say, look, that righteousness that you see among the religious leaders, even that's not enough. In fact, that's not real. It's perfection and perfection alone. And today... Perfection is available to us in Jesus Christ. Only through faith in Christ are we made perfect. There is no other way. There will be a lot of nice, good people who are in hell because they thought that their righteousness was enough. But Jesus is saying, no, you've got to be perfect, perfect in every single way. And the only way we can be made perfect is through Christ, through faith in him. This is what the Bible calls being born again. Now, for the believer, this is also important for us. Paul would write to the Corinthians at the end of his second letter that we ought to strive for perfection. Well, I thought we were already perfect. We are positionally perfect in Christ, meaning that the blood of the Lamb has washed away our sins. And so we no longer live according to the law. We are instantly justified when we put our faith in Christ. And we know from Romans chapter 9 that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the end of the law. And so he he has made us perfect through faith in him. But as a believer, in the uh, process of sanctification, that's you and I as born-again Christians being molded and shaped into the image of Christ, every single day we're getting closer and closer to him. We stay close to him, but we're growing in our faith for him. He says, Paul does, at the end of the second letter to the Corinthians, that we ought to strive for perfection. Perfection. We ought to make it our goal. Even if we are positionally perfect in Christ, our lives should reflect practical holiness. We should strive for perfection. In other words, we we shouldn't, as Christians, settle for compromise. Even if we're already perfect positionally in Christ, This is, uh, there's an application here that's important for us as Christians. We don't slack off. We don't compromise. We don't say, well, we're already saved and so I can just operate in the flesh. That's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 6, that no, should we go on sinning? No, of course not. Strive for perfection, even if we're already positionally Perfect. Let's go to our phone lines. Cindy from San Antonio, you're on the air.
0: Hi, Pastor Ken. I I have a question I don't know if I've heard asked before on the radio. And it's Proverbs (laughs) chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. And my question is... What are the seven pillars and how do we incorporate them like in our home and and in our life? And I'll get off the phone and listen on the radio. Bye.
2: Bye, Cindy. Thank you for your call. Uh, Yes. So Proverbs chapter nine, one of the things we have to remember about the poetic books is, is that there are poetic language that's employed that isn't, uh, interpreted the same way we would interpret different genres of writing, particularly, you know, like uh, historical narrative uh, or eschatological writing. And so, one of the things you have to remember is that poetic books mean that there uh, there's a language that's going to be used that is a little bit different than how we would normally talk. So, uh, wisdom is one of those things that in Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 9 and throughout of the other proverbs is is sort of personified in the person of God. But it's using it's 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 using pronouns and it's using uh sort of what we call anthropomorphisms that are a little bit different than how we would refer to God, but this is sort of the the wisdom of God personified and pointing to God himself. Now, specific to your question here, this let's see let me read it. Wisdom wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out seven pillars. She's prepared her meat and mixed her wine, and she's also set also set her table. Oh, okay. I got the context. Uh, I don't know if there are seven specific pillars that are being referred to here. Remember the number seven would be sort of the number of completion. And so the idea here is, is that wisdom is, is, is complete. And when it's applied to, let's say a household, um, there aren't going to be per se seven specific things put in place Um, but the way in which the house is built is going to be with the fullness of God's wisdom. And I think that's how we read this. So instead of looking for, you know, seven things that we want to implement in our home, um, we look at the wisdom of God. And again, chapter 8 is another chapter where wisdom is personified, pointing to Jesus. We make him the center of our home and these seven pillars are sort of included in the 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 completion is being included in in Jesus making him the center of our home. So I think that's how we read that. Um instead of looking for seven specific things, Cindy, uh wisdom personified means we make Jesus the center of our homes. Uh, thank you for your call. That's an interesting thought, too. I love reading the Proverbs, especially when it comes to the chapters about raising children and practical, the practical application at home, and in this case, practical wisdom. I love it. Let's go back to our phone lines. Jimmy from San Antonio, you're on the air.
1: Hi, uh, Pastor Kim. Hey, Jimmy. Um, I want to ask you about—hi, sir. I was going to ask you about a scripture, Matthew twelve thirty-two, where it says— um, uh, if you speak against Jesus, you'll be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be forgiven.
2: Right? I don't understand, Jimmy. I can help. I can help. And, and this is uh, this is that uh, what some people reference as the, the unpardonable sin, and Jesus is making it very clear here. There is no blasphemy, no sin that man can commit that will not be forgiven, that cannot be forgiven, except for the rejection of the Holy Spirit. That's the blasphemy that's being described here. And so let me read it uh, back one verse so that we can establish context, because this is very important. Jesus says... In verse 31, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And then verse 32, the one you referenced, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. You see, there were people at the time that Jesus was alive that rejected him. And so... Rejecting Jesus at the time, and I'm thinking of John chapter 7. When, remember when his brothers, and I include in that uh, Jude and James, his, his, his biological half-brothers who were not believers. In fact, they mocked him, and they were telling Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem? The festival is, is, is going on, and all the people are there. You can take your message over there. Since we don't want to hear it here, that's the implication. And, and go and reach the crowd. They weren't interested. Well, that would be the first part of verse 32. They would have rejected the Son of Man, but Jesus is saying here, you, you can still be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against or rejects, that's the idea here, rejects the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does that mean? It means that when the ministry of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, tells us that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Well, when that happens and a person is convicted of their sin, they have the option to repent and give their heart to Jesus Christ, or the second option, which is to reject that offer. Those are the only two options. And and Jesus is saying here, when the Holy Spirit comes and convicts the hearts of men because of their sin, and they respond by rejecting him, rejecting that message, then there is no forgiveness, because you've rejected the only opportunity you had to have your sin forgiven. That's all that means. So it isn't a particular sin that somebody does that is unforgivable. It is simply rejecting the only avenue possible to having our sins forgiven. And if you reject that opportunity, then there's no other way for your sin to be forgiven. That's what he means there. And then he adds, right now and in the age to come, that means at the time that Jesus was speaking and in the future, today. So Jimmy, that's the answer to your question about what verse 32 means. Um, The rejection of the Holy Spirit or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to simply deny the ministry of the Holy Spirit when he convicts us of our sin. Therefore there is no way for our sin to be forgiven. Does that help?
1: Yes, that
2: does help. Okay, Jimmy. It's really good to hear yeah. your voice. Uh, you uh, this, is, this is important for us because uh, one of the things the enemy does is he, he, he bombards our minds, Christians, with this fear that we have committed the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and therefore, we somehow lose our salvation because of something that we did. And that's just simply not true. That's not true. What is true is that Jesus holds us in the palm of his hand, John chapter 10. and, And Jesus himself says, the ones that the Father has put in my hand, I won't lose them. And nobody can pluck them out. For the person that is truly born again, there is security. And so there's nothing we do that will make Jesus change his mind about us and that's comforting that's really comforting for us jimmy so i hope that helps thanks for your call and thanks for your question Uh, let's go on to the next question that's been submitted phone lines are open if you want to call in we still have some time another one from anonymous if jesus really was god then how do you explain the fact that he prayed to god uh this is a question that we get on the show quite often, and, and in some form or fashion, it—the the question, uh, sort of—the underlying question really is uh, the 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 incarnation of Christ. In other words, it's a misunderstanding of who Jesus really is, because when Jesus was alive here on earth. He would always refer to his father in heaven, and and people who don't understand uh, Jesus being the Son of God and God the Son think that, well, if God, Jesus is really God, then who is he praying to? Well, he's praying to the Father, but you have to remember, the doctrine of the incarnation means that Jesus took on, took to himself, a new nature. But he did not subtract from, he did not uh, remove his old nature, which is the nature he's had from the beginning before the, even the beginning, which is the eternal God, the Logos. Jesus has always been. He preexisted. Is it? Creator God of all things. And so when he was born, he took on human nature, not sinful nature, but human nature. And during the time that he was alive, he lived as a human. He got tired. He got hungry. He felt all the things that we feel. And also, as an example, he prayed to God. His Father. But there's a unique thing here about Jesus' incarnation. Theologically, the term is the hypostatic union. And it simply means this, that Jesus didn't stop being God. He became fully human and fully God. Not 50% God, 50% human, 100% God, 100% human. And when he was here on earth as a human, he temporarily veiled his deed, he didn't lose it, but he simply veiled it so that he could live like you and me, anonymous. That's why, in the 14th chapter of John's gospel, one of the passages that clearly illustrates this is when, when Jesus is speaking. And remember, he's reminding, he's reminding his disciples. When they said, just show us the Father. And he says, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. Now, what's easily lost here in what Jesus is saying is that both he and the Father are one in essence. Because if you knew me, you know him. But they are distinct in personhood. They're distinct persons. If you knew me, then you know the Father. Two separate, distinct persons, but one in essence. So he wasn't praying to himself. He was praying to the Father while he was here on earth. But he and the Father were one. I hope that makes sense, Anonymous. This is so important because on Friday nights, uh, you know, Pastor Ron and I are alternating. He's going through the letter to the Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and I'm teaching the Gospel of John. It's interesting too because in that first part of Colossians and in the first the first chapter and also in the first chapter of John's gospel we are dealing with the deity of Jesus Christ and the specific things uh, about his character and his nature that make him the eternal god creator god and this is fundamental to our understanding of who Jesus is because there's lots of people lots of religions Lots of people who say they know Jesus, but they teach a different Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. John would uh, write later on in his first letter that the spirit of Antichrist is one that doesn't believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's how you know if somebody has the right Jesus. Uh, This is more important than I could describe. And so anonymous, please, please read John's gospel, especially the first chapter. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are done with the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. I will be here tomorrow at four o'clock for the Wednesday edition. Until then, God bless.